0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of the Week. We are delighted to welcome back as our guest this week, my EPPC colleague, Pete Wayner. Pete is a regular commentator for the New York times and author most recently of the death of politics, how to heal our frayed Republic after Trump. And let us begin with a discussion of the democratic convention thus far. Uh, There's been a certain amount of criticism of what the Democrats have been able to pull together in this most unusual year. Um, Pete, let's, let's start with you. Some say there has been too much emphasis on character, and they're worried that Hillary Clinton did this at her convention in 2016, and it didn't work.
1: Well, first, thanks to uh, having me on. Uh, it's great to be, be with you. I don't think that's right. I'd say several things about the, the Democratic convention, and then specifically to your question. I think it's been a success so far. Um, I wouldn't underestimate just what a challenge this was to try and do it through Zoom. Um, and I think they pulled it off really well. I think that the quality of their videos has been has been good. I think the pace has been good. Um, and I think something like the virtual roll call of the states was 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 spectacular. Mm. Um, and I think also the Obamas uh, were were fantastic in different ways. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that they did a nice job of an invitation offering an entrance ramp to Republicans on the second day when John Kasich, Meg Whitman, several other people, Christy Todd Whitman. Uh, and then Colin Powell yesterday, um, you know, spoke on behalf of Joe Joe Biden. In terms of the character and the policy side, um, I'm open to that. But Joe Biden, while he's been on, on the American scene for a long, long time, people um, aren't really that familiar with who he is. And I think since the Trump campaign is going to go after him on character, I think that's where they're, they're placed in their bet. The Democratic Convention has to do a lot to fortify The impression of his character, and I think they've done a good job of that.
0: Wait, you think the Trumps are going to go out? The Trump campaign is going to go after him on character. I thought they're going to claim that he's that he's mentally infirm.
1: Well, I think they're going to throw a lot against uh, against the wall, but I think the mental infirm. I suppose maybe it's 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 character and disposition and temperament, broadly speaking. Mm. So not necessarily that he's corrupt, but that he's a person who's. Who's uh, untrustworthy and and won't be able to get the job done, and I don't think that's on the uh, on the policy side uh, so so much. Um, and look, Joe Biden still has to speak, and we'll see what 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 he does to inoculate himself. Um, he is a person who, through his entire career, has not been a radical, and I I know that there may be an effort to try and tie him to the left wing of the Democratic Party. I don't know if that's going to uh, going to work. There's certainly things he can do to uh, to inoculate himself against that.
0: And there are many things he's already done. I mean, even even this year, he's had so many um, invitations to embrace radical positions, and he has declined most of those invitations. Uh, so that's, uh, I think, an indication of his view of the of the case. Um, Bill Galston, what do you think about the? Um, what do you think about the fact that because it's all online, uh, you, instead of, um, breaking away for conversations in the booth among journalists about the, the state of the race and so forth, you actually have the convention being beamed into people's homes and computers and phones.
2: It is for the most part, a lot more concentrated than traditional conventions have been. I mean, and, uh, they cram a lot into into two hours. Uh, I note with interest that that three of the four networks have chosen to air only the ten to eleven o'clock hour, and the fourth, Fox, as far as I can tell, hasn't aired any of it. Maybe I'm just looking in the wrong place. Uh, and
0: uh, I did not know that. That's extraordinary, really. Uh, well, isn't it? I
2: mean, I, I, I've been. I haven't been on Fox, but I have looked at the official schedules for the three networks and, you know, NBC, ABC, CBS, 10 to 11, and Fox has, you know, it's regular commentators lineup. I have to say, I was quite surprised and I'll be interested. It'll be interesting to see if I'm right about that. Somebody should check me whether they will persist in that, uh, through the Republican convention, which would be even odder. Uh, I think it, I, I think it's worked pretty well, uh, and uh, it's it's allowed uh, the Democrats to be judged on the basis of their own choices about what what they decided to air and what they decided to exclude. And uh, we can did, have. What
0: did you think of Kamala's uh, address?
2: Well, uh, as I was listening to Barack Obama, I said to myself. Poor Kamala <laughs> she has yeah. to follow she has, uh, i mean it was an it was an impossible act to follow uh interestingly, I thought she got stronger, less nervous, more confident as she went on uh and she delivered the Biden portion of the speech with somewhat more conviction uh than she delivered the part of the speech dealing with her own history and family background, which was, it it was nice on paper, but somewhat haltingly delivered. I think it took her about five to 10 minutes to get her stride. Uh, Yeah.
0: And it's, look, it's awfully difficult to address an empty room, you know, in in the way that she was obliged to do so.
2: Look, Mona, I, I I think the staging of her acceptance speech was misconceived. Yeah. Right. It was this cavernous, empty hall, uh, and she delivered the speech as though she were in front of thousands of people. That's the way it was written. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I think that uh, I think that that probably was not the best decision given the medium. A somewhat yeah. more somewhat more conversational style, I think, would have served better. Uh, yeah. She was, in many respects, very traditional in the way she handled her acceptance speech in circumstances that called for a little bit more innovation. I don't know to what extent she was responsible for those decisions, but I think it it made her job harder than it had to be.
0: Yeah. Um, Damon, uh, some people think that there were too many Republicans. Uh, and that uh, the progressives got short shrift. I mean, Bernie got a, a nice a nice uh, slot, but AOC apparently only got about 90 seconds. And uh, y- nevertheless, you heard from uh, all these Republicans that we've just been talking about, including John McCain's widow, Cindy McCain, and uh, Colin Powell, and on and on. And the Whitmans, Meg and Christine Todd.
3: Well, I mean, I I don't uh, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think the the Democrats um, have a unique strength and vulnerability in the at the present moment in history, incredible ideological breadth of the party. I mean, you, this is a party with Bernie Sanders holding up the left flank. He's been a lifelong Democratic socialist. Has only is only occasionally an actual member of the Democratic Party. He caucuses with the party for the purposes of, of business in the Senate, but he's not really even a Democrat because he's too far left. AOC is a kind of protege of his and, and is a Democrat, but is definitely trying to move the party further left than it's been um, probably ever. Uh, and then you have on the other side, you have within the broad boundaries of the party itself, you have people like Michael Bloomberg, uh, who used to be a Republican. And then you have these other, uh, people like John Kasich, Colin Powell, uh, uh and, and, uh, some of the others who spoke on Tuesday night, uh, Molinari and the two Whitmans, uh, who are kind of lifelong Republicans who uh, have not become democrats but who are comfortable in the current circumstance speaking to the convention so in if you're thinking in terms of the party doing the old-fashioned business in the general election of trying to go as broad as possible trying to get as many americans as you possibly can to vote for them then there is in a way there's there's no limit to how broad you should go Now, it is also, though, a vulnerability because the the message can get watered down. And I think you did get a little of this kind of stepping on toes problem on Tuesday night where you had almost, I think, back to back John Kasich giving his endorsement. Uh, of Biden, where he kind of promised center right Republicans, don't worry, I know Joe. He's not scary. He's not going to do anything that you won't approve of. And then, you know, a couple minutes later, uh, Bernie Sanders comes out and says, "Joe has has already promised me he's going to raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour, and he's going to have free childcare, and he's going to do all these other things, which are." Far short of what Bernie was promising in his campaign, but still would make a lot, of, a lot of those potential switchers from the Republican Party very, very nervous. So it, that's that's the the problem that the party comes to kind of seem like it has no core at all, and it just becomes a kind of placeholder for anything but Trump, and that can kind of potentially uh, you know, convince some uh, some voters who care passionately about certain issues that they shouldn't be too excited about the party because it doesn't really stand for anything. But um, you know on, on the you know, on, on the broader uh, uh, kind of the broader issue, I do think that it's a great strength of the Democratic Party that it it is willing to embrace as much of America as it's trying to do right now this week.
0: Linda, in all honesty, I'm a little amazed at the whining about the number of Republicans who have been cho- who have been selected to speak at this convention. Because, frankly, um, Democrats should be jumping up and down and and applauding. Because what have the Republicans? given as in, in exchange for this absolutely nothing. It's the Republicans who are in the weaker position here and who are saying, our candidate is so unacceptable that we are willing to cross the aisle and endorse your guy because our guy is a disaster. And- in what world would that not w- would Democrats not want to welcome that? I mean, it really strikes me as as crazy to look a gift horse in the mouth in the mouth that way. What do you think?
4: Well, I agree with you as usual, Mona. <laughs> but uh, you know, part of the the thing that I think we're we're really reacting to is this is the pundit class. Uh, and the Democratic operatives sort of whining about this. I don't think it is the average voter. And I have to tell you, watching this convention this week, um, I was choked up at various points uh, during the coverage. The beginning of the convention, when you heard the preamble to the Constitution, the Pledge of Allegiance, which, by the way, uh, the right wing is out there claiming that they uh, stripped the words "under God" from the Pledge of Allegiance. Which they and, did which not. Which they did not. I went back and I thought I would have caught that if they'd done it. But I yes. went back and listened just to make sure uh, that and and um, you know the singing of the national anthem. I thought that was one of the most beautiful renditions with those kids. Um, it it gave me goosebumps. Um, Last night, uh, E Pluribus Unum flashed across the screen. When's the last time, you know, you heard that kind of rhetoric um, in American life? Certainly not during the last three and a half years of Donald Trump. There has been a real effort on the part of the Democrats to say that we are one nation, we are one people, we are in this together, we either succeed together or we fail together. And that's a very different message. Than the message of the Trump campaign, and I would not be surprised when the Republicans take the stage that what we are going to see is American carnage, uh, part two. Uh, we're going to see burning buildings. We're going to see rioters. We're going to see uh, graffiti. Uh, we're going to see you know the threat that supposedly. Uh, the left. Uh, We're going to
0: see those two lawyers from St. Louis who waved their right, guns, their guns and peaceful right peaceful
4: protest. I know. And but so I announced know. that they are actually going to be given and That's work. right. I mean, this is going to be such a contrast. You know, I, Ronald Reagan would have felt very comfortable watching the Democratic convention that we've been watching this last week. And I think he would have felt very uncomfortable watching the kind of nonsense that I think we're going to see uh, coming up in the Republican convention. As somebody who has not voted for a Democratic candidate for president in 52 years, it was Hubert H. Humphries, the last time I voted for a Democrat. Uh, Joe Biden this week has given me lots of reasons to feel comfortable that I can vote for him this time around.
1: Uh, Pete, what about you? Yeah, just to echo what Linda said, I, I agree. I found uh, parts of, of the convention to, to be um, evocative and, and emotional, and I was moved by it. And I do think that she's touching on something that was happening that I think is important for the Democratic Party and will help them, which is it moved away from being uh, a, a party of identity politics to trying to create an American identity. And that's different, and that's that's important. And I suspect when, the, when the, we look back at both of these conventions, the identity politics party is going to be the Republican party, not the democratic party. Um, so much. Yeah. Uh, that's, that I think is, is significant both for what it says where the democratic party may be trying to go, but most especially where the Republican party uh, has gone.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, let me just say, I agree with, with, uh, all of you that, uh, there were aspects of this that were very, um, uplifting, uniting, inspiring, and, um, I I said in the piece that I have today in the bulwark that, uh, you know, just for those opening images, I'm ready to vote Democrat this time, you know, just for the smiles, just for the unity. uh, It's such a relief from the vitriol and the hatred and the denigration that comes out of the president's mouth every day. Anyway, Bill.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to say a couple of things. First of all, the three Republicans on this podcast are making me very happy this afternoon. <laughs> Thanks so much. And it, it occurred to me, as, as you were saying, or somebody was saying, uh, that Reagan would have been more comfortable at the Democratic convention this year than what the Republican convention will probably be. Uh, it seems to me if you had to do an ad for the Trump campaign, it would probably be called It's Midnight in America.
0: Yeah. All right. Um, Well, let us now turn to another item uh, from this week, though. It's really been um, a story of the past four years, and that is the um, Senate Intelligence Committee has issued its report in a bipartisan fashion um, about the 2016 uh, Russian interference in our election. And um, it Contains some some new information, um, such as uh, that Konstantin Kalimnik, who was on uh, the staff of Paul Manafort and who was a close associate of Manafort's for many years, who was identified in the Mueller report as having connections to Russian intelligence, in this report is identified as being an actual agent of Soviet Uh, of, uh, excuse me, Russian, uh, intelligence services. And, um, Manafort shared confidential campaign documents with Kalimnik, uh, and also conspired with Kalimnik even after the election to invent the story, um, to, to distract attention from Russia's role, invent the story that it was actually Ukraine that had, um, interfered in the election. Um, Damon when you look at this report, do you conclude that Robert Mueller blew it?
3: Well, you do get the impression that Mueller was was uh i don't know falling down a little bit on the job it's It's very strange as someone who follows all of this so closely day and week and month after month all these years now when I think back to how I thought of Mueller when he was first appointed and you heard that he was hiring all of these uh, you know, very impressive lawyers, a huge staff who were gonna be sorting through all of this stuff and I, I read a lot of uh, journalists who who sort of were on the periphery of the story like Josh Marshall and others who who had dug into the very very dense weeds on some of this and talked a little bit about it from the outside and it it seemed like it could be this thing that could kind of take down the presidency and explode this. Huge conspiracy all over the world. And, and then in the end, it ended up the report, the Mueller report ended up being a kind of a whimper. And then, of course, when Mueller testified uh, in Congress about the results, he sort of seemed a little doddering, uh, didn't seem to have all of his, uh, you know, wasn't uh, attending fully. And you sort of wonder, you know, was this really such a formidable investigation from the beginning? So I don't know, really know what to make of it. They spent, uh, you know, about a year or so uh, sorting through all of this. And it seems as if they just barely scratched the surface and then sort of threw up their hands and said, well, we asked the president if he did these things. He said, no, what am I going to do? Uh, that That is not what <laughs> you would expect from uh, uh, an investigation at such a high level about such an issue of of really severe gravity to the country.
0: Um, Yeah. Um, Linda, one of the things that they say in this report, and the Republicans signed on to it as well, is that Paul Manafort's relationship with uh, these uh, Russians and uh, agents of Russia represented a grave security threat to the United States.
4: Yeah, it certainly did. And, you know, you sort of look at this report and you say, too bad this didn't come back uh, come out uh, several months ago, back maybe you know at the time of impeachment, for example, and you wonder how the individual senators uh, Republicans who are on this committee could, in all good conscience, vote essentially against uh, removing President Trump from office during the impeachment hearings because The amount of involvement um, of the Trump campaign and its effort, not as you say, not just with Russia, but also with Ukraine, you now have two committees taking a look at material that the um, very people that are mentioned in this report have helped to try to gather uh, against uh, Biden, um, who are holding hearings and who are trying to make it seem... Uh, as if there was, you know, nefarious goings on with Burisma and with uh, other uh, Ukrainian um, uh, involvement uh, with, uh, you know, Joe Biden's son, Hunter. And none of that is shutting down. You you know, you see Senator Johnson out there uh, pushing ahead. You see Lindsey Graham pushing ahead. You see uh, the U.S. attorney, former U.S. attorney, uh, Mr. Durham, uh, up in Connecticut, pushing ahead to see whether or not you know there was illegal spying on the uh, on the Trump campaign. So I just I wring my hands in despair because I think this is a very important report. I think most Americans will not pay one bit of attention to it. The timing, it coming out particularly during the middle of the Democratic convention, means that I think it's going to largely be ignored.
0: Um. Pete, one one thing that struck me when I was reading this is that there's, it feels almost as if, um, so the, the Republicans on the committee, I suppose, deserve a certain modicum of uh, praise for being willing to put their names to the truth and say, this is what happened and sign it. But on the other hand, they are engaging in a certain amount of gaslighting at the same time. So they put all this out there and shows there were multiple contacts between the Trump campaign and the Russians, uh, many very questionable ones. Um, it, the FBI, though it made mistakes without question, um, certainly had ample reason to open a counterintelligence investigation here. Um, and yet the um, the Republicans issued a statement at the end of the report saying Nothing in here suggests collusion. There's no collusion here, um, and it reminds me of what Bill Barr did with the Mueller report. You know, he—he, he, of course, it was delivered to him, and uh, before it was made public, while they were going through it to uh, excise anything that might be classified, he uh, or or privileged in various ways, he issued a statement saying that uh, it sh- didn't show any underlying crime, and therefore there was nothing to see here. End of story. And it turned out that was not true, and but it was a kind of ga- gaslighting.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I mean, it shows you the sort of the blast radius when it comes to Donald Trump's corruptions. Um, how how people who know better uh, uh, eventually, almost all of them, become complicit in in his corruptions. I agree. There was the report, which was an important one. I have read part of it. It's it's uh, I think eight hundred and fifty pages or more. So I haven't read the whole thing. Um, it's an indicting um, and and withering report, I think. And then there's a the reaction to the report, um, and there is th- this should have evoked in in Republicans, at least in a sane Republican Party, um, outrage. Um, for one thing, w- we learned from this that that the president lied uh, in in his um, written answers to Robert Mueller about uh, whether he knew about the um, Wikipedia. Uh, releases in advance because of Roger Roger Stone. There is a lot of evidence of collusion. I, I just don't think any reasonable person could draw uh, any other uh, judgment than that. What they didn't find is a coordinated conspiracy, um, but there was so much there that was that was troubling. It's part of I think defining ethics and morality down in the in the era of Trump, not just for Republicans but probably for all of us because we've been so inured. And I I suppose psychologically one cannot help with that because it's just every day there is so much. But if you took a step back and said in any other era with any other president, what would this report have evoked? It would have been outrage. And yet then you had people like Marco Rubio, who was out tweeting as if this report was an exoneration um, of the Trump administration rather than an indictment of it. Um, None of this is, is new to us. We've seen it from. From the moment the Republican Party uh, made their their Faustian bargain with with Trump, which happened right around the time that he he sewed up the nomination, um, and and they've nothing has has changed since that moment, and it won't until he's defeated. But nonetheless, to see it, and particularly as someone like you, Mona, and 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 Linda, who have been part of the Republican parties for our entire lives, to see this is still um, kind of astonishing.
0: Yes, and to follow um, to follow up on the topic of Marco Rubio, which I do with no pleasure, I mean, I supported him in the primaries in 2016, um, had high hopes for him, and uh, he has been, of course, a bitter disappointment. But he was the chairman of this committee uh, when the report was issued uh, because there was a problem, an ethical problem involving, um, uh, who was the other guy? Uh, Burr. Burr, yeah. Mm-hmm um but um but he so so you're absolutely right he's out there tweeting these things uh that seem like exonerations and he said in the report or he said in response to a question from a journalist you know about what the committee proposed you know to prevent all this in the future he said we must do better in 2020 well <laughs> but better than what? I mean, you, you've, you've apparently think you've said that this is, this is nothing to see here. It's no collusion, no problem. So what, what do we have to improve on? I'm, I'm confused, Bill. (laughs) Oh
2: Lord, what is there left to say? Uh, (laughs) No, serious, seriously. And, you know, and, uh, you know, Pete, offered one interpretation uh, for the reception of the report, that we've become inured to iniquity. Uh, And I think there's some of that. Uh, But another part of it, and I think just looking at uh, introspectively at my own uh, reaction to the report, uh, I've sort of moved on. The report is about the past, and with so little time to go in the presidential election and so much at stake, my attention is turned to the future. I'm glad the report exists. I think it will be very important for governance purposes when we actually get back to governing, uh, and it will be a treasure a treasure trove for historians. Uh its political impact will be next to nil, in part because it merely confirms what people who oppose Trump have believed all along, and it is it is testing the ability of people who are sticking with the president to perform ever greater feats of mental and moral gymnastics. But beyond beyond that uh I'm I'm left with nothing more to say. And it is it, you know, this is one of the sorriest chapters in American history. Frankly, it's making Aaron Burr look pretty good.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, well, look, um, uh, before turning to Pete for a, for a wrap up, uh, let, let me just say that there's, um, I think it's, Bill, I think it's even worse than that. I mean, uh, and, and you <laughs> described it in pretty dark terms, but look, I mean, our attorney general has not only agreed with the president that this was a hoax, but he has assigned a career prosecutor to investigate the investigators on the grounds that there never was any rational basis for opening an investigation in the first place. Now, that much having been said, I hasten to add that Kevin Kleinsmith did plead guilty this week to altering an email in the pursuit of a uh, FISA warrant on uh, Carter Page. Um, so there was wrongdoing, by the way, it's very unusual. I've never heard of somebody being criminally charged for making a mistake like that, but it's been done here. All right. So there was some wrongdoing in, uh, on the FBI's part, but the note that this report completely obliterates the argument, uh, that there was never a basis for investigating the ties between the Trump campaign and, and the Russians, um, and yet we have uh, uh, the Durham investigation that is still hanging fire. We don't know what will happen. Um, and it's all part of this campaign of what can only be called disinformation on the part of our attorney general. All right. I've, I'm finished fuming. Pete, did you want to add something? <laughs> and your point is, Mona. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, just this very, very quickly in, in response to, to Bill's point, I, I don't disagree with it. And I certainly would not recommend the Democrats run the campaign on this. It, it is old news. And I accept the fact that psychologically, there's only so much that, that we as human beings can absorb. I think my main point here is it says something deep and important about the Trump presidency that a report of this nature and findings of this nature would barely cause a ripple. Because in any other reality, under any other administration, this would be a huge story and should be a huge story because of Donald Trump and because of his manifold and manifest corruptions. This is just something we've come to accept. I'm not sure that that there's much we can do about it. Um, but, but it, it, it does tell us something about the, the state of, of, of our politics and the state of the presidency.
0: Yes. Um, and I think we, um, can continue to analyze this because, um, I want to turn now to the state of the Republican party, um, in light of a win this week in a primary, uh, by Laura Loomer, who, um, Won the uh, nomination to for a House seats in a very heavily Democratic district, but nevertheless she beat uh, something like four or five other Republicans. She is a certified nutcase. Um, she is malevolent. She uh, celebrated well, didn't quite celebrate, but she refused to mourn, as she put it on Twitter, when a mass murderer opened fire in Christchurch, New Zealand, and killed something like 50 people praying at a mosque. Um, she said, well, she, she wasn't, she wasn't going to mourn any of that until every single Muslim in the, on the planet apologized for nine 11 or, or something along those lines. Um, she wants to have a different Uber, uh, so that she doesn't have to have Muslim drivers. Um, she, uh, anyway, she, she, she once chained herself to Twitter when they banned her from their platform. She chained herself to the front door. She's a, she's not a well woman. Um, and yet, um, this is the kind of person that some Republicans are elevating. And this comes on the heels of, uh, QAnon, um, supporters, believers and whatnot, winning some primaries as well. Um, our, Friend and colleague who was also on the show last week, JVL, said that it's possible that there will be more QAnon supporters in the next Congress than Mitt Romney supporters.
4: (laughs) Well, you know, I happen to be in Boulder, Colorado this week. And um, whenever I come out here, I touch base with my friends, some of whom I went to high school with. I get out and walk around the city. And to my utter amazement, I am seeing support among some of my old friends for QAnon. Yeah, uh, one one friend uh, said that she's very very concerned about child trafficking. Well, as we know, that whole child trafficking story is part of the QAnon conspiracy. It yep. says that there is this cabal of people from Tom Hanks and Oprah Winfrey uh, to uh, Hillary Clinton, and I assume. Jim Comey and others uh, who are engaged in trafficking children for sexual purposes. But when they're done with them, uh, they don't just let them go, uh, they eat them. Uh, they engage you in talked cannibalism about this on the podcast last week. Yes. Yeah, right. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, really, really crazy stuff, right. but I'm seeing it. And when I was in downtown Boulder yesterday on the street corner, I saw a woman with a big Q sign again, talking about how Trump was going to save us from these uh, predators. So what worries me is that some, you know, well-meaning people are getting this stuff they're getting their news from alternative sources they're getting it off of facebook they're getting it off of right-wing sites it's the same kind of uh sites that were telling them that under god was stripped from the uh Pledge of Allegiance during the Democratic Convention, and they don't seek out alternative sources. So I'm actually very concerned about this. I think there are millions of people who, while they might not sign on to every, you know, a jot and tittle of, of the conspiracy, are still being influenced. And I think that's very dangerous. I think this is one of the most dangerous moments we've ever had in our hus- in our history in terms of these kinds of conspiracy notions.
0: Uh, Damon, did you happen to catch the clip of Trump being asked about QAnon yesterday at the White House?
3: Yes, yes. It's, uh, I mean, I, this goes to the heart of what has me most distressed about our moment. Uh, Since I'm not, or at least have not been a Republican for quite a long time, I I look at at some of the issues we discuss on this podcast a little differently than some others who are, are are long-term Republicans and for whom this is more a kind of battle or hope that somehow you know the party can be taken back and returned to sanity. Whereas I I repeatedly look to the Republican voter as the the core problem here. I mean, I'm critical of Office-holding Republicans who kind of, you know, capitulate to Trump and don't criticize him and don't, you know, treat the uh, the Senate's report about uh, uh, about the Russian collusion issue as is serious. And and I, I do that in my columns all the time. But the ultimate cause is that. The Republican segment of the electorate is undergoing something very scary right now, and you know Americans have a history of going a little crazy. You read the essays of Mark Twain; he has very sometimes amusing things to say about this. Um, the The whole idea of great awakenings happening in American history from time to time, and a lot of my friends, uh, Pete is Pete Weiner, is one of them who come out of a kind of evangelical background, Uh, I've listened to people uh, uh, along those lines say things for a long time, like, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had another Great Awakening in America? That's what we need, a spiritual rebirth. And depending on what it is, that might be a positive development. But the fact is, I think, on the left right now, we're living through a kind of Great Awakening that's very secularized, having to do with... Uh, a lot of issues wrapped up with Black Lives Matter and racism, anti-racism being an almost kind of religious outlook. But then on the right, you have something that is, I think, a lot scarier, which is a kind of great awakening of conspiracy, mass psychosis. Uh, I mean, frankly, I think any any adult human being who affirms the things that the QAnon uh, conspiracy, uh, claims is true. Anyone who actually thinks that that is an accurate description of reality is, is really playing with, with active psychosis. And you have, you have now the president of the United States asked directly what he thinks of this and effectively comes right out and says like, Oh yeah, you know, the, the, these people, they like me. That's great. Yep. he doesn't care now. Remember, he's a guy who had to be ostensibly dragged kicking and screaming to distance himself from David Duke four years ago when David yep. Duke said some nice things about him. So he'll, you know, any anybody who says something nice about Donald Trump, he's going to want to uh, hug the person and say, "Yeah, good for you." You you can see the truth of how wonderful I am. But in this case, he is actively encouraging a conspiracy that involves him. <clears throat> Involves the Republican Party, involves our country and its institutions in a way that is insane. So how does one combat this? I don't know. It's one of the biggest uh, problems confronting our country and I think confronting uh, any culture in the world, which is pretty much all of them now that are hard, that are wired together through social media and the internet, where there are no universally accepted authorities who can adjudicate between sanity and insanity. So I don't, I don't really know where we go from here. All I can do is hope that that broad coalition of Democrats I talked about earlier can actually win and, uh, and try to dispel it a little bit, but I I don't know. It's distressing to say the least.
0: Yeah. Um, So uh, Pete, in the, 19th century there was a sect called the Millerites the followers of William Miller who preached that the end of the world was coming but not like at some uncertain time but exactly he t- he, he said it was going to happen between the spring of 1843 and the spring of 1844 and he had a whole bunch of people believing that it was that the end of the world was imminent and that it was going to be the second coming and um and when the date came and went, um, they called it the great disappointment. But uh, the, it's the, the religion has come down to us as the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Um, but um, is is that the nature of what we're looking at um, with the with the QAnon business, or is it is it wrong to frame it as a as a religious kind of impulse?
1: i 'm not sure if it's a religious impulse, I think it has a kind of religious importance that people um, place on it um, and I think this is one of the the problems of of our times, which is I think people have invested generally speaking a kind of religious significance into politics uh, because because other areas of life have have uh, uh, have weakened and been attenuated. Um, but this is this is a huge problem and I and I think uh that the Damon was very elegant in his description. I, I do think that one of the real fundamental if you if you said well what are some of the deep and fundamental challenges facing the country beyond Trump, what he identified is one that I've thought a lot about and worry a lot about, which is that there are no accepted sources of authority. I, I've had conversations with close friends of mine, one actually just recently. And it was pretty stunning. This is this was a person who's who who was uh, so, some I've known for for, for uh, decades. Uh, is a very good guy, um, and uh, you know he's he's a serious. Uh, uh, he's involved in finances, and he was involved. He w- had bought into all of these conspiracy theories, or many of them, and there was just no way to communicate with him because he simply was selecting different sources of information. And that's different than what we've had in the past, where we ha- agreed more or less on, on common facts and then debated um, how to interpret them and, and how to proceed. We're in something different. And I think the part of the reason that we're in the situation we are is, is one, social media. Um, conspiracy theories are part of American history, as you alluded to. And really, if you go to the founding of the republic, if you go to 18th century, you know, Britain, they existed, they've always existed. Today, um, they they are less rooted in facts than they have been in the in, in the in the past. So you simply make assertions. Uh, this this uh, would would be the uh, Alex Jones Infowars um, model of conspiracy theory. Um, And social media has obviously connected people that in the past had not been connected. And then it was easier to keep those conspiracy theories on the fringe. The second thing that makes this a different moment is that you have the president of the United States endorsing and amplifying these conspiracy theorists. And the third thing that I'll say is that President Trump's reaction to the QAnon question was once again an important insight into what I have long thought is the Rosetta Stone for, for, for Donald Trump and understanding him. Which is how psychologically and emotionally unwell and unstable he is. For him, it is simply the fact that QAnon are supporters of him that he therefore embraces them. There is no other factor that goes into into his 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 judgment of of individuals or of movements. And this is a degree of malignant narcissistic personality disorder that we've just never seen in an American president. So if you combine the social media reach with the president. Um, this is a dangerous time. My, my one hope, or a hope that I have, is ultimately that that truth and reality will out. I just don't think, in the end, that societies can succeed if you don't have some common understanding of truth. And and like viruses, sometimes create their own antibodies. I suppose we're in an age where that that's relevant. That this sort of insanity and conspiracy uh, theories creates a counter reaction where where virtues. And qualities and characteristics of, of human beings and societies that were once treasured and cherished. Maybe we forgot why they were, and maybe we'll we'll remember why they're important in, in the wake of all of this.
0: Huh. Well, that would that would be good. Well, first, if
2: I wanted to be snarky, Pete, which as you know is not my not my style, you know, I might I might remind you of a famous famous episode in an administration in which you've served, in which someone questioning uh, an action of the administration was dismissed as being a member of the reality-based world. I'm sure you remember this one. Uh, yeah. And- uh,
1: Can you know, I real a quick, Bill, on that? that uh, we don't have to go into it. That was actually not a true quote, and I'm happy to- Okay, get fine. That, then- that has been- and I think shown not to be true. So just I, the record
2: <laughs> then I then then I withdraw it and get to my main question. and that is, you have you have described pointedly a man who has no business being president, never had. But nonetheless, as you said in a recent interview, Republican voters in twenty sixteen, had their choice among a 16 candidate field, including very strong candidates representing just about every flavor of conservatism that could possibly be identified, uh, and, and decided instead, you know, to you know, you know, to select Donald Trump as their nominee. Uh and you offered an explanation as to why that happened, which I really found striking. And I would, I'd like you to repeat that explanation and amplify it in light of recent events and whatever other thoughts you may have, because it really is the fundamental question. You know, how does a major, venerable, and for a long time, very serious political party end up making such a choice?
1: Yeah, sure. I'm 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 happy to to answer that. Uh, and let me begin by saying I agree with Damon. I, mean, I I have long thought that the real problem here is is not less Trump in a certain way than the people who elected him in the base of the Republican Party. I think that underscores that pathologies. Uh, Republicans in Congress would be willing to take him on if they weren't afraid of the backlash, not from Trump per se, but from the voters. So I I think that that is that is the uh, the problem. Why has that happened? Why Why did uh, Republicans in 2016 in, embrace somebody when they had so many other options um, that, that were clearly better by any metric that they had ever uh, cast a vote for? I think it's several fold and I think it's complicated. One is that I think that there had been a, a degree of resentment and grievances and bitterness that had grown up and grown in the Republican Party, in the base of the party, that Trump tapped into, and there was a sense that he would bring a pistol to a cultural knife fight. There was a feeling that this was an existential moment, um, which I think is silly, but this is, I think, the operating assumption that a lot of people on the right had, Um, and that the left is intent on destroying them and the country, and that they needed somebody who uh, was not as genteel as as McCain or Bush or Romney, and they thought... uh, Trump would would do that. I think there was a sort of psychic satisfaction that a lot of voters took that Trump was saying things that they may not have been comfortable saying, but but they felt like um, when he said it, um, he was expressing some deep longings that they that they had. I think there, there are more benign interpretations of why they voted for him. They bought into the false narrative that he was a sex businessman. There was a sense that the that the establishment had failed uh, the country and the Republican Party, and that he, it needed to be destroyed and then rebuilt, and Trump would be the person to um, to uh, to do it. But look, I think most of the explanations for why the Republican voters in a field uh, as wide and as deep as it was in twenty sixteen only selected Trump, but it was never really a close race. He was near the top within three weeks that he was. He was in my first column in the New York Times. Warning about Donald Trump was in July of 2015. And I actually had trouble getting the piece published in the Times because they thought, why is he writing a piece warning about Donald Trump? This guy's going to be a non-factor. And it was because I think Trump tapped into something that w- was brewing and existing. Um, and, 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 and off he went and the, and the voters followed him.
0: Can, can I jump in with, uh, something that I've been thinking about along these lines and that is, um, in my experience being on the right and being, uh, and, and meeting other people who were conservative, I think in some ways the ground might have been prepared for this lack of trust, by all of us in a sense because we were critics of the mainstream media for the things the mainstream media wouldn't say or was ignoring or wasn't taking into account and that was really a big part of why people turned to conservative media because they felt that the mainstream press had a point of view that they weren't acknowledging. They always said, "Oh no, we play it completely straight," whereas people knew that wasn't true. That it, that that they, they they had a point of view and and they were suppressing certain things and elevating others based on their preferences. Um, and by the way, just uh, just as conservative media does in in the reverse, but it it may have created an atmosphere or an appetite rather, um, in which people thought, well, alternative sources are better, better avenues to the truth. And you can't trust the New York Times or CBS, but you can trust, you know, X, Y, or Z. And I began to notice when I was going on these national review cruises that people began over the course of years to begin to refer to more and more. First, they were these newsletters that they were talking about. And then these more and more sort of recondite sources of information that they all seemed to know about, but that were mysterious to me. And, um, so I don't know. I, I think it's possible that that their sense that they're not entirely wrong uh, view that the mainstream press was biased predisposed them to believe just about anything that came from the alternative media. Linda, what would you, well, I,
4: I do agree with you on that, but I think there was another phenomenon that was very important. I think we cannot ignore that Donald Trump ran his campaign on the basis of racial grievance. And what, he tapped into was a growing concern, I think, among lower middle class whites that their world had been turned upside down. They were competing with new immigrants for jobs in which the immigrants were often willing to work harder and at lower wages. Uh, They were seeing their communities uh, change dramatically by the influx of people who did not look like them. You know, and I tried during the course of the 2016 campaign to try to put myself in the shoes of somebody who was uh, from that background, because that actually is the background I grew up in. I grew up in lower middle-class white neighborhoods. Uh, My friends that I talked about earlier in the program, who my high school friends, um, they were part of my growing up, this lower middle-class white world. And, you know, just going into a mall uh, in you know, the Washington DC area. Um, malls that you know, where once most of the shoppers were white are suddenly very brown. You know, there are a lot of immigrants there from Asia, from Latin America, from Africa. And the world in which these people um had lived and had felt comfortable was changing. And I think that Trump uh tapped into that. With his you know speech after he came down the escalator about Mexican rapists and others moving into the country, and I think we can't ignore that and um we also can't ignore that you know the Democratic party um has been the party that has been very much into racial and ethnic identity. they pushed the the notion that where you came from, where your ancestors came from is as important as where you are today. And I think all of this um, helped um, Donald Trump and in a very unfortunate way, which is why I was so pleased that the Democratic Convention this year, turning to, you know, making us feel proud to be Americans, uh, not, you know, so much proud of where our ancestors were born, but proud that we're here and that we are part of this great, wonderful uh, nation as Americans. <laughs>
0: All right. I, I I want you all to tell me whether I'm being um unfair. But if you look or, because there are still some people in the Republican party who are really fine public servants, but if you look at and maybe I'm biased, but if you look at the news lately, so we have Laura Loomer uh being uh nominated for a, a house uh race uh we have trump's comments on qAnon we have steve bannon who's uh was arrested today for um for bilking the supporters of you know, the the trump supporters that he claimed he was mr populism right the, the the little guy was being trampled by elites well it turns out according to this indictment he was stealing money from a charity that called we build the wall. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So not Mexico. There, not Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Not Mexico. Uh, the, the, the roofs were paying for it. Um, and then, and paying for his private, you know, uh, expenses. Okay. We have Jerry Falwell Jr. posing with his pants down uh, with a woman, not his wife. We have Wayne LaPierre. Um, uh being uh, accused of uh running a basically a, a, another scam called the NRA that was uh that was stealing money from from its supporters you have Michael Flynn endorsing the QAnon thing and taking the pledge um am i wrong or is this party really just has it just spun off into a world of total craziness and corruption yeah. Anybody want to say There's, I'm being too harsh? No.
4: <laughs> Silence.
1: I, I, one thing I guess I would say, um, Mona, I, I agree with you. I, I do think that um, a lot of Republican lawmakers, um, if it were not for Trump and Trumpism, um, w- just don't buy into this craziness. I think there have been lack of, of courage on their part. And back to the point that Damon made, there are pressures within the party from the voters to to continue this nonsense. I think the question, and and it's an open question, is if Trump is defeated, particularly if he's defeated badly in November, what happens? And uh, what's the future of the Republican Party? Does some of this insanity subside? Do more responsible impulses and sensibilities and voices rise up? Um, and, and I don't, I don't know that politics is, is, is contingent like life in general. Um, I think as long as Trump is there, um, and, and his control of the party, um, w- w- this is, you know, we're, we're, we're stuck in this position, whether there's, there's any light that's going to, uh, you know, shafts of light that are going to cut through the darkness post Trump. I guess that's, that's, that's the open question. It's an important one because the country is going to be a lot better as well as the Republican party. If there's a sane uh, and and sensible center right.
0: Yeah. uh, I I couldn't agree more, but uh, at the moment it looks, um, it's hard to see how, uh, how we get there. All right. um, Let us, oh, Bill, did you have one more thing before we turn to our final highlights and lowlights?
2: Uh, Yeah. Only, only to point out that uh, Nate Silver is giving Trump, about the same chance of getting reelected as he gave him of being elected four years ago.
0: Yeah. Which I do not understand.
2: Well, and well, uh, but he was, he was giving Trump a serious chance at a time when no one else was Yeah, just about nobody else in his business anyway. And so I just want to put a question on the table, maybe for further discussion, because we don't have time for it now. We've, We've conjured with the question of what it would mean for the Republican Party if Trump is defeated. But there's another question we have to conjure with. What will it mean for the country if he wins?
0: Yeah. Next week. All right. Um, Let us, uh, since I have you, Bill, why don't you start us off with your highlight of the week or low light?
2: Well, uh, I'm going to, uh, you know, maybe narcissism is, there's a virus for it and it's catching. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but I'm uh, but I'm going to talk about a little piece of research that I've done just in the past few days that fascinates me. Uh, I you know I'm really interested in governors as leading indicators, and so I recent uh, I frequently look to see how they're doing in the court of public opinion, and I noticed the following, you know the second most popular governor governor in the country is Larry Hogan. The third most popular is Charlie Baker. The fourth most popular is Phil Scott of Vermont. Uh, and what do these three guys all have in common? They're, they're all, all
4: Republicans.
2: They're <laughs> all Republicans. That's number one. Number two, they're all successful reco- Republican governors in bright blue states. Number three, they all describe themselves as Conservative on fiscal issues, but moderate to liberal on social issues. And number four, all three of them vocally declined to vote for Donald Trump in 2016. Uh, They have been extraordinarily successful as governors with those three identical profiles. Uh, And I'm asking myself, what does that mean for the future of the Republican Party? What does it say about the center of gravity of the country?
0: Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Of course, the problem is that though you can't say that about the governors from red states, <laughs> oh, where it's it's well, that, 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 it's that's, too that's pricey. To, yeah, it's too pricey to be anti-Trump in those in those states. Okay, right, uh, but, if there's,
2: but if there's a debate, you know, if if the defeat is bad enough. To create an open feel for debate about the future of the Republican Party, uh, the debate that was what died uh, in after the 2012 autopsy, uh, then I think it's it's an interesting question.
0: Yeah. And let us let us hope that that's. <laughs> That's where we're headed. Okay, Linda.
4: Well, that uh, last comment by uh, Bill was certainly something that brightened my day. I'm a big Larry Hogan fan, and and if he's the future of the Republican, I will be glad that I have not yet changed my party registration. Let me point to an article. You mentioned the uh, Bannon indictment, but there's a very interesting piece by Aaron Blake in the uh, online edition of, of The Washington Post today which says Bannon's indictment raises more uneasy questions about William Barr's Southern District of New York gambit. And you may remember that a couple of months ago, the U.S. attorney in that office, Jeffrey Berman, was fired uh, inexplicably. Uh, by Bill Barr and everyone was. Linda, focused. he
0: wasn't fired. He was just <laughs> oh, told yeah. the day before that he <laughs> oh, was leaving.
4: Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. His his letter of resignation, which he had not written, had been accepted. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, so you know, everybody was very focused on the fact that um, Jeffrey Berman's office was looking into some of the friends of of. Um, Donald Trump and that Rudy Giuliani was under investigation. Well, little did we know that the indictment that was about to go forward was of um, Mr. Bannon. And that now means that all three of the people who headed the Trump campaign in 2016 have been indicted for felonies. I think that tells you a lot.
0: Kellyanne Conway, watch your back.
4: Yes, right.
0: (laughs) Um, Okay, Uh,
3: Damon. Yes, um, well, uh, this is already a a piece that came out about five days ago, so it's a little bit uh, late, but it's about a timely uh, and broader uh, issue. Uh, It's an essay by uh, Ivan Krastev, who I think I've plugged once before on the podcast. Uh, He's written a review of Ann Applebaum's new book, uh, in Foreign Policy magazine, titled The Tragic Romance of the Nostalgic Western Liberal. And uh, I'm a big fan of Anne Applebaum's work, both as a historian and as a journalist, and I like her new book. But this is, I think, a very uh, productive and, and useful, uh, friendly but serious critique uh, by one of the, I think, leading um, intellectuals of the of the uh, Western world, broadly defined, extending all the way to uh, Central Europe, because Krastev uh, is ultimately, uh, he lives in Vienna and writes there most of the time, but he's uh, from Bulgaria originally. So I recommend the piece. Uh, I'm sure listeners will not agree with everything in it, but it is uh, a good spur to uh, thinking about uh, difficult questions about about the themes we've discussed today throughout uh, the podcast, uh, as they pertain to uh, governments around the world, the kind of rise of populism and what populists want, and what they do with governing and the world order that results—that uh, might result from what
1: we're seeing.
0: Okay, Pete Weiner.
1: Yeah, and uh, it's disoriented political moment, I've found myself retreating to books uh, more than than in the the past. They have a way of of centering uh, me, and I I host a book club uh, on Zoom. And just this week, we discussed um, Henry Nowen's book, Life of the Beloved. Nowen was a uh, Catholic uh, priest uh, who died about 20 years ago. And in that book, um, he has a short section Where he talks about gratitude which i think is one of the most important uh and underappreciated virtues uh, in in human life Uh, Mm. and he said about it he said we can decide to be grateful or we can uh, decide to be bitter and when we persist in looking at the shadow side we will eventually end up in the dark Um, but that every time we decide to be grateful it will be easier to see new things to be grateful for gratitude begets gratitude just as love begets love, which I thought was a lovely quote. Um, And I think um, all of us, myself included, could use uh, a little more gratitude and a little more uh, love um, in our lives.
0: Well, amen to that. Um, I want to mention uh, a news story that broke today. Um, Alexei Navalny, one of the leading uh, Putin critics and opponents in Russia, um, has, uh, been rushed to the hospital. Um, he's in critical condition and he, this was after getting on a plane. He was perfectly healthy. He had a sip of tea at the airport and now is in critical condition. Well, his staff is saying he was poisoned. Um, Putin opponents, um, have a habit of dying violently or through poison or through other having meeting with unfortunate accidents. And, um, it is, uh, it is worth remembering what kind of a monster Putin is and the way he does business. And um, the fact, first of all, we should be grateful that for all of our troubles, uh, we have not come to that. Um, and second, we should bear in mind that um, there are certain irreducible moral standards that we have to uphold, leaving aside, is Putin good for our foreign policy. Is he bad for our foreign policy? Is he on our side in certain parts of the world or not? That's irrelevant. The fact is, this is the kind of thing that we have to denounce full-throatedly and uh, and always. So we wish the best of, we wish a full recovery to uh, Alexei Navalny. Um, with that, I thank you all for listening. Uh, again, make a quick plea for um Ratings recommendations. Uh, the podcast is doing really well, but um, it I mean, every week we get more listeners than we had the past week. And I thank you for those who have spread the word um, and uh, ask that you know in your indulgence could you do a little bit more of that. We really appreciate it. And we welcome your feedback. You can reach me. You can look me up on uh, the website of The Bulwark. And uh, my my email address is there, but I'll give it now. It's mcharin at eppc.org. And uh, we welcome your questions, comments, uh, suggestions. And uh, we look forward to being back here next week. Thank you so much.